This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portzio. My name is Andrew Carroll. Today we are discussing the career of the OG, original gangster, literally, Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, see? Andrew, run down his history. Edward G. Robinson was born in 1893 in Bucharest, Romania. Emigrated, he emigrated with his Jewish, Yiddish-speaking family to the United States in 1904 in order to escape the anti-Semitism that was rife in Europe. His acting debut was in 1913 in the Yiddish Theatre District, and his career flourished after his World War I Navy service uh, ended. He was in demand during the silent film era, and interest in him only doubled when the change to sound was made. His breakthrough role came in 1931's Little Caesar, and despite his most famous roles being tough guy gangsters, Robinson was never typecast and appeared in more than 100 films over 50 years, including war pictures, comedies, dramas, biopics, and the occasional horror. He volunteered for the army when America joined the Second World War, but at 48 he was disqualified for his age. He devoted much of his time during the war years to championing anti-fascist and anti-Nazi causes. In 1946, he worked with Orson Welles in The Stranger, in which he played a Nazi hunter. He was grey-listed during the 1950s due to his being investigated by the House Un-American Activities Commission, though he was cleared of all charges. A lifelong friend of both Humphrey Bogart and Charlton Heston, he often appeared alongside them in films such as John Huston's Key Largo, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, and his final role in 1973's Soylent Green. Despite his reputation for playing nasty tough guys, he was considered a kind, soft-spoken and intelligent multilinguist in real life with a keen interest in art. He was the recipient of both the Screen Actors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award as well as an Honorary Academy Award. He received the latter two months after his death in 1973 when Charlton Heston presented it to his widow. Just a total legend who was an inspiration on a, a lot of things that we cherish today. Chief Wiggum yeah. and the Simpsons' voice yeah. is uh, modeled off of <laughs> him. And um, I think if it wasn't for stuff like Edward G. Robinson in Little Caesar, I don't think we'd have the gangster genre or joe pesci and goodfellas and things like that and i think there's mm. other ways he's influenced culture and also noteworthy another character actor we will probably cover someday on the show michael stuhlbarg played edward g robinson in the recent enough movie trumbo which isn't a yeah. great film but is good if you want to learn more about the hollywood robinson was a part of and i remember stuhlbarg being like uncannily good in it like scarily looking so much like edward g robinson uh, but edward g robinson was your pick andrew what made you want yeah. to cover him on the show uh, like any and like any actor I pick, I really love them in a specific movie and want to see more of them. So I, I've, I'll, Double Indemnity is one of my all-time favorites, Same. and I've watched it. I think uh, at least twice in college, uh, making it a real pillar of my education, and several more times after that. And uh, I just think his turn as Barton Keys, the insurance claims adjuster, is probably one of the most iconic kind of supporting roles in a noir film ever. I'd go in further and say one of the most, doing the best supporting roles in the history of cinema. (laughs) But we can get into it. Um, Will you start off with Little Caesar, which was his big break? Yeah, sure. I need you, Joe. I got the biggest chance of my life. The big boy just handed me the whole north side. But it's too much for one man to handle alone. I need somebody, somebody to work in with me, a guy like you, somebody I can trust. Can't be me, Rico. I've quit. You didn't quit. Nobody ever quit me. You're still in my gang. Do you get that? I don't care how many fancy skirts you got hanging onto you. That Jane of yours can go hang. It's her that's made a softy out of you. You lay off, Olga Rico. I lay off or I'm after her. One of us has got to lose and ain't going to be me. 
There's ways of stopping that, Dame. You're crazy. Leave her out of this. Yeah, she's through. She's out of the way. That's what she is. You're lying. You wouldn't dare. I wouldn't, would I? I'll show you. Rico, listen. I love her. We're in love with one another. Don't they nothing to you? Nothing. Less than nothing. Love. Soft stuff. I, I have the pot synopsis right here for once. Yeah. Something Go good. Um... <laughs> Yeah, Little Caesar, released in 1931, was made Eric G. Robinson a star in it. He plays Caesar Enrico Bandello, a.k.a. Little Caesar, a cold-blooded and ruthless low-level hoodlum who shoots and threatens his way up the ranks of organized crime. Drifting apart from his best mate, hoodlum-turned-professional dancer, Joe Massera, played by Douglas Fairbanks Jr., as he does so. And, yeah, I've seen this twice, and both times I've watched it, I'm surprised by how good and modern... And influential it is and you would think a gangster film made in the 1930s when you couldn't show graphic violence or swear that's only 78 minutes long like most gangster films now stretch over two hours you think that would make little caesar feel sanitized or compromised but aside mm. from some of its action set pieces and killings feeling quite choppy either i don't know if it's for budgetary reasons or for because of censors but the movie is really compelling and I think it's all down to Robinson, who, alongside people like Paul Mooney and Scarface, Shane Venation, and James Cagney and The Public Enemy, I think set the blueprint for gangster performances for the next, like, 90 years. What do you, what do you think yeah. about it? Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's short and snappy and punchy. I don't think it feels entirely whole, and I think it moves a bit too quickly. Um, but maybe I'm just comparing it to, like, you know, like the likes of Goodfellas. Or I think, I think the James Cagney films are a bit more fully formed, mm. um, which is kind of why I think Cagney and, like, um, Angels with Dirty Faces or Public Enemy it kind of trumps Edward G. Robinson as like the quintessential kind of tough guy of that era mm. um, but I think it's it's still easy to see why it made Robinson such a star and like for such a short man he's fucking immense on screen yeah. I think what sells it for me um, and I think this is what makes it different from a lot of other gangster movies um, specifically like the later ones like Goodfellas or Casino or something is like a lot of, one of the reasons a lot of people like and one of the reasons a lot of people hate gangster films is that these guys are wise guys, um, is that they're, these characters are like, committed to the life. You know, they, they never regret becoming a gangster, no matter, no matter how badly things go for them or the people they love. And I think in Little Caesar, it's a little bit different. Like, it skews it a little bit. I think, like, Rico is like, you know, it's the classic rise and fall narrative. He, he gets everything he wants and loses it and also he gets what's coming to him, as all gangsters do in these kind of movies, uh, when most of the movies... Um, but he, he's, he's not without his regrets um, at the end and even during his career. And I think there's a scene in particular where he goes to kill his best friend Joe, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And I think it's especially powerful because it's all on Robinson. And you can see his, his face just go from... He's about to shoot Joe. And his face just slowly goes from like that classic bulldog snarl into something... It's like a soft... It's, the, it's very soft light and very white. And... It, morphs from this kind of feral rabid snarl into something almost kind of I wouldn't say angelic but very very sorrowful and you can see all the regret in his life briefly play out before he snaps back to who he is and uh, on the outside at the very least and you know just become this mask that he is again you know he's, he's pushed everything so far down as most gangsters, will, gangsters do and will in these movies and uh, I think outside of the Irishman, it's something you rarely see in the gangster genre. And I think it, obviously it's a little bit, you know, in comparison to the likes of the Irishman or something like that, it's quite heavy handed. Um, whereas, you know, Robert De Niro's turn is a little bit subtle. You know, he, he's outwardly not very um, um, regretful of what he's done, but inwardly you can tell he is. Whereas in this, it's all on, um, it's all on Robinson and you can see 
you see everything play out in this maybe less than 30 second scene and I think it's that makes it that's what makes it powerful and kind of what saves it for me you know it's, it could ju- could have just been like something you could like you say ah yeah it was grand I see why it's so iconic da, 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 da. and then you know we move on to talking about Goodfellas but no I think this is uh, that's what makes it special for me yeah and I find that that's a thing that I saw a lot in these Roberts movies that we're going to be talking about was that I feel like back in the day like in this golden age of Hollywood directors put a lot more on actors because they couldn't really be so explicit in terms of the dialogue what they were showing that oftentimes actors have to carry a lot mm. <laughs> you know and like yeah. convey huge amounts of information in just like 20 second scenes or 30 second scenes so that's uh, in keeping with that um yeah just on the character of Lil Caesar, i think what's really interesting about him is that um, a lot of people will say like oh if this person mess with me i'd kill him i'd shoot him in the head and they like shy talk essentially Lil caesar goes on like that too, except he just completely follows through on those accidents <laughs> and shows no remorse for it. And everyone else is so shocked because, like, that's not how it works, you know? Like, it's not sustainable long term. And while Caesar does yeah. ascend to this kind of higher echelons of crime, it's not long before his impulsive nature, you know, like letting the newspaper take his photo, you know, threatening to kill Joe and his girlfriend. Although, interestingly, as you say, like, not being able to pull the trigger, it's kind of weird that the, the one moment of empathy he shows, like, is what actually brings him down. But um, yeah. I think that combined with his impulsive nature is sort of what knocks him off his pedestal. And, um, yeah, by all accounts, as you say, like, Richie Robinson was this really nice guy, but he was blessed with just one of the most fascinating faces and bodies and yeah. voices in movie history. Like, IMDb describe him. <laughs> I don't like uh, commenting too much on actors' features, but, like, IMDb describe him as having yeah. a catfish-like mug and a short squat frame. And I think it's something that he could deploy to be both, like, very gentle and kind playing heroes, but could also contort to playing these more evil, sadistic characters like Little Caesar or his character in Key Largo. And then you couple that with just his background in theatre and his iconic voice, you know, the, yeah, see? Like, mm-hmm. he just has so much presence. And, like, he's not Clint Eastwood, you know, he's not Jason Statham, he's not your typical kind of hard man, but, like, akin to someone like, you know, Joe Pesci in Casino and Goodfellas, he's kind of a force of nature, and... He's not physically imposing, but he, he seems it on screen. And I, I never yeah. doubt for a second in this movie that his underlings are scared of him. And I, I saw a quote Robinson famously said, like, some people have youth, some people have beauty, I have menace. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, <laughs> and like, there's that great scene where, like, Robinson Caesar tries to reconnect with Joe and, like, bring him back in to his crew and Joe rebuffs him. And Caesar just flips on a dime from being quite level-headed and cool, like he's complimenting Joe, to being very threatening. And you can see... You can tell he feels betrayed and jealous that Joe has abandoned him for this woman, like the other dancing partner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Caesar grabs like Joe by his jacket, and, like gets right in his face, and like he says, like "There's a ways of stopping that dame," and then starts like patting his chest, like he's gonna stop her heart. And yeah. it's just really vicious and visceral. And um, I, I, I think this goes for kind of all gangster movies, though. But I, I was surprised they were doing it so early, uh, despite being Caesar being like a really horrible character. You are very compelled by him, and you do root for him. And it, it's partly yeah. what you mentioned—the sort of like you see, like in the ending, "Mother of Mercy, is this the end of all Rico?" Or you know, when he doesn't kill Joe. But like, it's also kind of just thrilling watching this small-time criminal shoot his way to the top. And he, I also think Robinson is so good at conveying those little moments and emotions that we can identify with, like how joyous Caesar is at the dinner being hosted in his honor, where he he gives that terrible speech where he's like, the food is good and we're all having a swell time. And that's about it. <laughs> he's not a very eloquent person. He's more of a, like a doer that acts on emotions than 
a, a deep thinker and then but also like when he buys like 10 copies of the paper that has the pictures of the dinner and he's like sauntering down the street and he's like tugging his like fancy tie and admiring the watch his crony stole for him like that's a silent scene but like we get that caesar feels on top of the world and there's also how wowed he is as he like but also kind of out of his depth when caesar goes to meet the underworld overlord in his mansion and that, that scene kind of reminded me of like the Sopranos almost, you know, when you'd see all these like New Jersey gangsters, you know, when they go to like a school function or something. Uh, I think Robinson finds a lot of nuance in his thug of a character. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to move on to the double indemnity then? Absolutely. She can go to court and we can prove it was suicide. Oh, can we? Mr. Norton, first thing that struck me was that suicide angle. Only I dumped it into the waste paper basket just three seconds later. You know, you uh, ought to take a look at these statistics on suicide sometime. You might learn a little something about the insurance business. Mr. Keyes, I was raised in the insurance business. Yeah, in the front office. Come now, you've never read an actuarial table in your life, have you? Why, they've got ten volumes on suicide alone. Suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. Suicide, how committed? By poisons, by firearms, by drowning, by leaps. Suicide by poison, subdivided by types of poison, such as corrosive, irritant, systemic, gaseous, narcotic, alkaloid, protein, and so forth. Suicide by leaps, subdivided by leaps from high places, under the wheels of trains, under the wheels of trucks, under the feet of horses, from steamboats. But Mr. Norton, of all the cases on record, there's not one single case of suicide by leap from the rear end of a moving train. And you know how fast that train was going at the point where the body was found? 15 miles an hour. Now, how can anybody jump off a slow-moving train like that with any kind of expectation that he would kill himself? No, no soap, Mr. Norton. We're sunk and we'll have to pay through the nose, and you know it. Edward G. Robinson plays Barton Keyes, an insurance claims adjuster and the close, and maybe only friend, of insurance salesman Walter Neff. Walter falls for Phyllis Dietrichson, Barbara Stanwyck, and with her, murders her husband for the insurance money prompting Keyes to start an investigation. When it comes to Robinson, uh, Robinson's character in this film, I think like a lot of the other characters in this, like um, Walter and Phyllis and Lola, who is um, Mr. Dietrichson's daughter, and Nino, her like weirdly uh, aggressive boyfriend, ba- basically everyone else in the movie, feel kind of like raps, cotton traps. It's only people like Keys and maybe some of the other like side characters, um, like the head of the company and the fellow they call down to be a witness to the murder. Like, Keyes feels like he has a life outside of all the horrible shit that's happening in the movie. Like, it feels like he has a wife. It feels like he works a 9-to-5 job and he goes home and, you know, almost forgets about his job for um, uh, the duration. Uh, whereas Walter commits murder and covers it up. Um, the worst thing that happens to Keyes until the very end of the movie is indigestion. The little man and, uh, in his chest. Which he describes as, there's a little man in here. And every time he appears, I can't eat. I can't swallow. <laughs> And I think the, the relationship between Walter and, and Barton is a whole lot more believable than whatever's going on between Walter and Phyllis. You know, classic noir. Whereas like, it's like this, uh, it's, you watch this movie and you're like, oh, male friendship. It's like watching the nice guys <laughs> yeah, or something like that. you're totally correct, yeah. yeah. What I thought recently about Dublin Indemnity, because I, I think about this movie every day, is um, that there are two great movies in Dublin Indemnity. And one of them is Dublin Indemnity. And the other one is Barton Keyes' investigation of the whole thing. And, you know, both of them reach a very tragic conclusion. Um, uh, But I think we'd feel a lot sadder um, if both movies were made and we saw Double Indemnity and then we see the same movie but from Keyes' perspective and his version of the story. And I think we'd feel a lot sadder as Keyes discovers how far his friend has fallen. And, you know, like, just the amount of pathos Robinson puts into his final line of, Walter, 
you're all washed out. Oh, devastating! I think devastating. It's it's a performance you would teach if you could, if you were in a, if you ran an acting school or whatever. Because there's that point just from a technical acting perspective. There's the bitten um, where there Walter and Keys are in the CEO's office or whatever that guy is. Um, Barton Keys is listing off the various methods of suicide and murder, and it's this three-minute monologue. Um, suicide, by suicide by arsenic. Suicide by by poison. By arsenic. By carbon monoxide. Death by falling. By by hanging. All that stuff. But this, and like we're only scratching the surface of it here. But it lasts about three minutes, and it's incredible, and it's almost breathless. And like everyone choosing their dialogue in different ways in this in this movie, but Robinson's all his long monologues and snappy kind of excited quips are what make make this movie like thrilling outside of all the outside of all the scenes where Walter and Phyllis are like plotting and scheming and kissing and like trying to one up each other. So much of this movie is on keys. Like he's almost a, th- I won't say he's a third lead, but the movie would not be the same without him and would be just not boring, but you know just kind of like a three and a half star thriller without him. What I love about Robinson is in this movie is that you think the main emotional relationship in this film will be between the co-conspirators and lovers, Walter mm-hmm. Neff and Felix Dietrich, and that Barton Keyes would be just a thorn in their side, you know, the the obstacle, the stickler. And while he is that to an extent, like, there's so much more to his character. And I, and I, I really do think that the main emotional arc of the film is actually between Neff and Keyes. It, it, they're kind of tragic almost paternal relationship it's a love story and literally neff says that multiple times at first jokingly but later sincerely how much he loves keys and i think early on the movie establishes how much robinson's keys like prides himself on his work as a claims adjuster because he talks about how important the job is he's like a claims man is a doctor and a bloodhound and a cop and a judge and a jury and a father confessor all in one and he talks about his obsession how this his obsession with work keeps him up at night how he has a little man in his chest that acts up when he senses a dodgy claim and that won't calm down until the claim is proved to be phony and i think the movie establishes that this dedication to the job might have been at the expense of his personal life a little bit because he, he's not married and he talks at one point about being engaged and that the little man in his chest acted up and Neff jokes oh, yeah, that he had the yeah, woman yeah, investigated yeah, yeah. and ruled her too risky. It's a great scene. And I think Neff looks at Keyes and knows that's something he could do, something he could become, but that he doesn't want that, like to be stuck in mm. the kind of work rut. And it's like a son who looks at his dad's job and is like, boring, nerd, I'm going to be a race car driver. And like, he wants a lover and money. He desires an exciting life, Neff. And I don't think it's coincidental that Walter turning down Baron Keyes' offer to come work for him as an assistant comes with him concocting this murderous plan Phyllis. Like, she even calls him during that scene. And I think to me, the tragedy of the, the denouement of the movie, like the final scene in the office between Bart and Walter... Like and the movie literally ends with them, you know, is mm. how disappointed Barton is in Walter and how Walter realizes he made the wrong choice. That like Phyllis didn't care about him, like she wouldn't light his cigarettes for him. Keys did yeah. and would. Yeah, that's all baked into the screenplay. But in terms of Robinson's performance, I think Golden Age of Hollywood movies like Double Indemnity trusted their audiences a lot more than movies do today. And I think if Double Indemnity was made today, there'd be a lot more expository information about Neff and Keys' friendship. There would be like a scene where Neff would say, like, or Walter Neff would say explicitly in narration or to Phyllis a variation of, you know, I'm conflicted about betraying the man who took a chance on me when no one would, and Keyes would have a monologue about that betrayal, and we'd learn about how they met and their past. And said the movie just trusts uh, Fred McMurray as Walter Neff and Edward G. Robinson's Brent Keyes are able to just convey all that information to viewers just in how they interact with each other. Like, you see how 
even when Keyes is stressed about the job and ranting, which, you know, anytime that's happening in the movie is amazing just because Robinson tears into those monologues and yeah. really makes you believe that claims adjusting is the most important thing in the world um, in those moments. But, but even when Keyes is, like, anxious, like, he's always trying to teach Neff, you know, things about the work and be sincere with him. And while Walter Neff listens, like, he pokes fun at Keyes and tries to wind him up. And you can see Keyes acting annoyed, but deep down, like, enjoys the barbs mm. they have. And anytime the two are on screen together even if they're just talking about insurance shit, you just feel the love between the two. And like, some of that is like the sharp dialogue. Cause like the script is written by Raymond Chandler and like every line of dialogue in this movie is just incredible. And like, you have to fight the compulsion watching to not to rewind scenes to just enjoy it even more. Yeah. Like a lot of it's just the chemistry between Robinson and McMurray, their body language, how they play off each other, how they seem to enjoy each other. Um, they're so comfortable and funny together to the extent that like, you don't need any backstory. Uh, but then also you compare how, that and how chatty they are throughout the movie to how quiet and silent Keys is in that final scene and it, it's so hard to watch like it's tough and it's yeah. like when a parent says I'm not angry I'm just disappointed personified for an entire scene and that line was it Neff says you couldn't see it because the guy you were looking for was too close right across the desk from you and Robinson kind of utters ruefully closer than that Walter like oh and that, Two things I want to talk about, though. Um, I remember this great old podcast, Copern Film, did a series on Billy Wilder, and they said that they thought the Keys and Ness relationship must have been an inspiration on uh, John Hamm and John Slattery's relationship in uh, Mad Men. Uh, but then also, we studied Dublin Demi in our crime media course in college, and uh, I remember our professor put forward the theory that by casting Edward G. Robinson, who at that point was famous for playing criminals and stuff in like things like Low Caesar, Dublin Demi was trying to make a point that insurance companies are kind of crooked too, and like you sort of see that in you know the true keys is boss in the movie and like the whole yeah. notion of Dublin Demi itself that like if you die in this really unusual way, we'll give you more money because we know you won't. I I, I think that's interesting too. Yeah, just in terms of, like, who anyone who hasn't seen Double Indemnity is just, like, it's top ten territory for me. I don't rewatch really a lot of movies. If I do, it's mostly to jog my memory about, like, actors I, w- I want to talk about on this podcast or movies I want to write about. Like, I've seen this five times. It's just quintessential and, like, Billy Wilder's, like, just amazing direction. The framing, the blocking, the use of shadows. Mm. It's just all impeccable. Uh, Chandler's screenplay, as I mentioned. And, yeah, it's just so funny as well. It's just a really wittily yeah. written movie. <laughs> If Desert Island Discs was about DVDs, Dublin Indemnity would be my number one. Absolutely. I want to talk about two movies back-to-back because sure. uh, this is Woman in the Window and Scarlet's Free because they're both directed by Fritz Lang. Both came in within two years of each other and both star Edward G. Robinson. You know, we've talked about Little Caesar where Edward G. Robinson played a criminal and you'll be talking about Keith Largo later where he played another criminal. And I think in Dublin Indemnity, they are subverting Owens' expectations of Robinson by casting him as a a nice figure of authority who is still kind of threatening in that he presents a threat to the main character. But while being more known for playing these kind of fierce and shady men, like Robinson was widely reported as being this like sensitive, quiet, artistic man when not performing. And I think the two movies he made back to back with legendary director Fritz Lang, which one of them came out in 44, Woman in the Window, one came out in 45, Scarlet Street. I think they both lean into that more sensitive side of Robinson and, you know, the characters feel a bit closer to Robinson's real-life persona and the two movies are incredible. In both of them, Robinson plays these middle-aged men who start off the films as kind, hard-working, respectable, people who seem to have it all together, you know, the wife, you know, the nice job, friends, but either out of ennui or loneliness, they wind up pursuing a younger woman and become entangled in this kind of crime plot. Uh, don't we in terms all... of one in the window, uh... which is not to be mistaken with the Amy Adams movie that's coming out uh, soon. <laughs> mm, totally yeah. different. Uh, the plot synopsis reads... 
Gotham College professor Richard Wanley, played by Robinson, becomes obsessed with the portrait of a woman in the window next to the men's club he frequents. Wanley happens to meet the woman while admiring her portrait and ends up in her apartment for talk and a bit of champagne. Her boyfriend bursts in and misinterprets Wanley's presence, whereupon a scuffle ensues and the boyfriend gets killed. In order to protect his reputation, the professor agrees to dump the body and help cover up the killing, but becomes increasingly suspect as the police uncover more and more clues and a blackmailer begins leaning on the woman. Fellows is not on duty. We'll check at his home this afternoon. Inspector Jackson, Professor Wanley. How do you do, Inspector? Pleased to meet you, sir. Oh, uh, excuse my left hand. I have a little cut. Oh, yes. How's it coming? All right, it's nothing. How did you say you did it? Well, uh, I was opening a can in the kitchen the other night, and the can opener slipped. What was in the can? Poison ivy? <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid that was pure stupidity. Uh, the next day, I was looking for a lost golf ball, and evidently I got into some poison ivy. You must have scratched it. It's a pretty bad infection. Well, it's an awful nuisance, I know that. Is, is this your case, Inspector? For the moment. They're all his cases, all the tough ones. Inspector Jackson's head of the Homicide Bureau. Oh. Like, I think out of the two movies... A Woman in the Window is a bit more classical. It's this kind of nightmarish, be careful what you wish for parable. You know, Robinson's character dreams of being with this young woman in the painting, but once it happens, it destroys his life. And it's fascinating watching Robinson go from being comfortable, but a little unsatisfied with middle-aged life to actually meeting the woman of his dreams. And like, she says things like, do you want to come back to my apartment? And he's like, I shouldn't, but like, I can't believe this is happening. Like he's kind of a bit awestruck to being just consumed with paranoia and desperation after this killing and like struggling to maintain his life to just ultimately like defeat as the news closes in on him. The movie also has this really taut screenplay. You know, Robinson's character's best friend is a, a district attorney, so knows all about the investigation into the killing. So there's a couple of great scenes of where Robinson is trying to appear like he's casually asking his friend, like, how's work going? How's that investigation? But he, you know, he's really trying to scope out if he's in trouble yeah. or not. And like he's trying to suppress this panic while he's doing it. And like occasionally he slips up like when they haven't found the body and know just that the guy is missing. Robinson's like, just because a guy is missing for a day doesn't mean he's been murdered. And his friend is like, who said anything about a murder? Like, stuff like that. And um, through his friend, Robinson finds out that the guy who died was a major figure, so other unsavory types start looking into the murder. And, like, it's just an excellent movie that builds to this, like, really powerful, devastating, tragic finale that is then a bit kind of undercut by this very silly final twist, which, although foregrounded early on, feels totally out of a different movie and it also feels kind of shoehorned in because they might not have been allowed to end the movie the way they had intended to at the time in which it was made but even the silly ending has this kind of old hollywood charm to it so i can't get too annoyed about it as you heard in the intro this show is part of the headstuff podcast network ireland's largest network of independent podcasts there's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network here's a taster of one to wear hard hats. Have a listen to this. Just to carry my name and address and be sure. You're not getting an answer to that. Have a listen to this. The Head Radio podcast looks at the humble scene in the backward place where no one important ever looks. To steal from Patrick Kavanagh. Taking inspiration from the hedge schools of old, the Head Radio podcast brings you stories that you won't hear anywhere else. You need imagination for everything. Have a listen to this. It's someone's reaction to reading a book. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. 
Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Whereas The Woman in the Window is good, Scarlet Street is incredible. Like, Woman in the Window is this very <laughs> classic noir story that's slightly hampered by a, a sanitized ending. But Scarlet Street is just crazy and convoluted and all the better for it. And, you know, also speak about these projects being closer to Robinson's real-life character. The actor was an avid art collector, so in Scarlet Street he plays an amateur painter who is unhappily married and his only really real joy comes from painting. And uh, one night when he's walking home from a work party, he has a kind of dead-end job as a cashier. He sees what appears to be a woman being attacked and steps in and she thanks him and they get a drink. And when she asks him what he does, he says he paints. And when she says, like, well, you must be one of those famous painters whose work hangs in galleries, he doesn't correct her that he just does it for him. And as it turns out, she and the guy who Robinson scared off are lovers and con artists. And at the boyfriend's insistence, she begins to date Robinson to scam him out of the money, thinking he's super wealthy, which he's not. Sold any pictures lately? Mm-mm. Why don't you paint my picture? I'd like to. Could I bring my easel to your apartment? Oh, I'm afraid my girlfriend wouldn't like that. How long does it take you to paint a picture? Well, uh, sometimes a day sometimes a year you can't tell it has to grow i never knew paint could grow Uh, feeling grows you know that's the important thing feeling well now you take me well nobody ever taught me how to draw so i just put a line around what i feel when i look at things yeah i see it's like uh, uh it's like falling in love i guess you know first you see someone and then it keeps growing and until you can't think of anyone else. That's interesting. Well, the way I look at things, that's all art is. Every painting, if it's any good, is a love affair. I never heard anyone talk like that before. Mm. And uh, I don't want to reveal too much more about the plot because the, the real thrill is, you know, how it plays out and keeps twisting and turning. Like, every 30 minutes, something major happens, and you're like, this will be the conflict for the rest of the movie. And then something even more mad will happen. And you're like, okay, well, I guess this is it then. And, you know, just on Rams, it's a very similar character arc in Scarlet Street to Woman in the Window, like this good, meek man with one flaw who is undone by that flaw. And he, you know, he starts off Scarlet Street as this, like, really sweet, melancholic guy who has so much purity and integrity when talking about art, which I, I feel comes from Robinson himself because he was a big art collector. But over the course of the film, like, out of anger, jealousy, desperation, you see a darker side of his character being teased out. And whereas Woman in the Window, because of that twist ending, doesn't let Robinson sort of sit in that darkness and go fully dark, Scarlet Street does. And you know, without spoiling, like, the final scenes of Scarlet Street are literally Robinson alone, consumed by guilt, going mad, full, like, Edgar Allan Poe, Telltale Heart stuff. <laughs> and it's in 
like those moments I've like Robinson has like never been rawer than like any of the other movies I've talked about on this and the ending it's it's so darkly comic but very bleak and very stark that I, and I, to the extent that like I don't think it would be allowed even now in a mainstream movie so imagine my surprise when it was in a movie that was made in the 40s yeah. and I'd urge people to check it out it's one of the best discoveries I've made through this podcast I think it's in the public domain now so it and Woman in the Window are available to watch for free on YouTube do with that information what you will exactly do you want to hit uh, The Stranger sure I'm sorry sir but I think it's ridiculous <laughs> well, there may be some fanatics but no German in his right mind can still have a taste for war do you know Germany, Mr. Rankin? I'm sorry, I... I have a way of making enemies when I'm on that subject. I get pretty unpopular. Well, we shall consider it the objective opinion of an objective historian. Historian? A psychiatrist could explain it better. The German sees himself as the innocent victim of world envy and hatred conspired against, set upon by inferior peoples, inferior nations. He cannot admit to error, much less to wrongdoing. Not the German. So, Edward G. Robinson plays Mr. Wilson, an agent of the UN War Crimes Commission haunting the genocidal Nazi Franz Kindler, who's hiding out as Charles Rankin, a public boys' school teacher in a small Connecticut town, and he's played by Orson Welles, who also directed and wrote the film. So this film is apparently 90 minutes long, but it feels about three hours, mostly because it was cut to ribbons by uh, the notorious supercutter of the time, Ernest J. Nims. Orson Welles blames him on, you know, kind of fucking up the movie, as, uh, as or- Orson Welles is, tends to do. Um, and despite the fact that it drags, it really is like an Orson Welles picture. Um, so you have all the shadows, the acute angles, the deep focus, and the early use of like those really long takes, and they all fit the tones and moods that Wells was so obsessed with in his early years as a filmmaker. And I think when it comes to Orson Welles, there was a Citizen Kane level masterpiece lurking in every single film that he made, waiting to come out. But as I said, studio interference quite often prevented this from from ever happening. And it was the first American film to incorporate footage of the Holocaust into its story and there's a shot of Robinson who you know escaped from Romania which was uh, an anti-Semitic country at the time and you know only got worse as the 20th century uh, ran into World War II and there's a shot of him standing in front of um, like footage of Holocaust mass graves that's being projected onto the wall and you can see like all this all these shots of bodies playing across his face and it's really really effective really chilling Shame about the rest of the movie, but what can you do? And I think it's it's fair to say that had Robinson's family not emigrated in the early 20th century, that not, even, not only would Robinson not have become the actor we respect so much, but that he might not have lived as long as he did had he stayed in Romania. And it's basically a noir murder mystery, but the murderer is you know guilty of the deaths of six million people. And I think Wells is mostly to the side, kind of devilishly stroking his Heinrich Himmler moustache for most of it. He recognises that, you know, he's not the star of the movie and he never wanted to be the star of the movie. Um, he always wanted to be a director, so he leaves plenty of space for um, Robinson's Wilson and uh, in, who's trying to convince um, his uh, Wells' character, Kindler's wife, uh, Mary Longstreet, who's played by a wonderful Loretta Young, that her husband is a war criminal. I think if this movie was better paced and just kind of included all of the horribly nightmarish things like a chase through South America or a woman being like attacked by dogs 
um, that Wells wanted to include and shot some of. I think it would be, you know, on the same level as Citizen Kane, but about someone trying to find a Nazi uh, war criminal in a small Connecticut town, and it just unfortunately isn't that. uh, I think the idea of it is better than the film itself. Robinson is pretty decent in the movie. Yeah, I remember watching it, and I was going through a Wells phase and being thinking it was good and had a great premise but not really capitalizing on it even though some elements are really good i really like that clock tower finale i think it's kind of amazing but it's definitely not up there with like people always talk about citizen kane as being the thing that wells the hype watermark and like to it is to an extent but like lady Mm. from shanghai touch of evil mr arcadian all those movies are (laughs) incredible and like the fact that they're like not even talked about that much now that people are just like yeah, Citizen think, Kane, it's crazy. Yeah, I think the thing is is that Citizen Kane manages to cram so much into a film about a single character in under two hours is why it's you know so well regarded. Um, and I'm not saying that Touch of Evil and Lady from Shanghai don't do those things. I've only seen Touch of Evil now out of those out of those movies you listed. But uh, I think because they're smaller stories and don't feel as epic as Citizen Kane does, that's maybe why they're not as uh, well-respected. But Orson Welles is the only man who directed a movie 40 years after he died. (laughs) (laughs) That was really good. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's true. um, While you're at it, do you want to hit Key Largo? He knows what he wants, don't you, Rocco? Sure. What's that? Tell him, Rocco. Well, I want... uh... He wants more, don't you, Rocco? Yeah, that's it. More. That's right, I want more. Will you ever get enough? Will you, Rocco? Well, I never have. No, I guess I won't. You, do you know what you want? Yes, and I had hopes once, but I gave them up. Hopes for what? A world in which there's no place for Johnny Rocco. So, um, Edward G. Robinson plays Johnny Rocco, a notorious, a notorious gangster and Cuban uh, who has been exiled to Cuba, who is staying in the Hotel Largo on Key Largo, uh, waiting on his Miami contacts to deliver, a, to collect even, a case of uh, counterfeit money. Then Frank McLeod, who's played by uh, Humphrey Bogart, uh, who's an ex-army major uh, who knew the man who, of the, who was a member of the family that run the hotel including Humphrey Bogart's then wife, Lauren Bacall, and uh, Drew Barrymore's, I want to say granddad, Lionel Barrymore. They, they greet him warmly, but you know Johnny's gang takes them all hostage as a hurricane hits the hotel to make sure that they don't alert the sheriff that dodgy dealings are going on. And uh, you, know, you don't really see or, uh, Robinson until about maybe half an hour into the, into the movie, and he's introduced like smoking a massive cigar and sipping a rum and coke in the bath. And it was hard. It wasn't the last gangster Robinson would play, but I think it's certainly one of the last kind of um, iconic gangsters that he would play. And here's my thing with Key Largo. I don't know what your opinion on it is, Stephen, but I think it's one of those movies that up until the last penultimate scene, uh, you can you can tell it, that it was adapted from a play. And I think. Well, it does boast a lot of the mega mega stars of that era. Like you have Humphrey Bogart, you have Edward G. Robinson, you've Lauren Bacall, you've uh, Lionel Barrymore. Uh, it's just ultimately not that interesting, I don't think. And I think it's hard to justify basically filming a play for ninety minutes and then just kind of letting loose in a you know a pretty exciting final scene that has a shootout on a speedboat. And it uh, it never really feels like a noir 
or a more standard crime genre, which is kind of admirable in its own way. You know, things have to be different in order to be interesting, but I, I do think they missed the mark on this one. It's been years since I've seen it. I would love to rewatch it. I remember thinking it was incredible, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, I'm sad I didn't rewatch it for this. I could have fought you. We, we could have had yeah, like another yeah. run of our Abbott debate. Well, I mean, it was the, it was the fifth film. Yeah, we could have, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, that, now that, that should only happen once every like three episodes. True, <laughs> you can't uh, keep you fighting. Know, can't, yeah. can't keep fighting about this. In fairness, it was the fifth film um, Robinson and Bogart had made together. Um, so, you know, they obviously liked each other and loved working together. Just as, obviously, just as much as Bogey loved, loved working with his wife, uh, Lauren Bacall. Mm. It's an American icon for a reason. Yeah, I love Lauren Bacall. We should totally do her on the show. You, you're saying that you felt the uh, movie felt very kind of theatrical because it's all kind of in one space. And it's in the middle of like a rainstorm, yeah. isn't it, or something? Or there's some... It's, it's, yeah, a hurricane hits the hotel, yeah. Yeah, I remember feeling more claustrophobic than theatrical. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you could be uh, right there. Um, I suppose I don't really have much to compare to because there's... Uh, I've. I haven't really watched many films that are set in one location yeah. during a storm. It's also kind of a bit when they're all the movies are shot on a back lot as well, <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, uh, kind of ties into what I'm going to talk about next, which is the uh, Cincinnati Kid. How the hell did you know I didn't have the king or the ace? I recollect a young man putting the same question to Eddie the Dude. Son, Eddie told him, all you paid was the looking prize. Lessons are extra. I think it's kind of the first new Hollywood movie of the ones that we've talked about, which starred Edward G. Robinson. And it's uh, you know, set in the 1930s in New Orleans. Um, Steve McQueen plays the Cincinnati Kid. He's this up-and-coming poker player. And upon learning that the widely recognized master of the game is in town, Lancey the Man Howard, played by Edward G. Robinson, the Cincinnati Kid seeks to sit down at a table with the legend to show him in the world he should actually be the Cincinnati Man. Uh, look, I told a friend that we were covering Robinson, and he said, man, you got to watch the Cincinnati Kid, and I'd never heard of it. It's this really cool movie. Uh, for one thing, there's like, a lot of interesting people involved in the making of it. Sam Peckinpah was set to direct it, but was fired shortly after filming began. And then he was replaced by Norman Jewison, who made In the Heat of the Night, Rollerball, and Moonstruck. He kind of had a Howard Hawksy kind of career. He sort of did everything. Hal Ashby edited it, who made The Last Detail and Howard and Maud. And then just on the movie itself, like, it's set in New Orleans, and the soundtrack is wall-to-wall, big band, jazz music. And then, unlike a lot of Robinson movies that we've been talking about, it's in colour too. And, like, well, I love those black-and-white movies. Like, the colours really pop in this one. And then... You know, this movie came out in 1965 and you're, you're seeing the shift between classic Hollywood movies which almost exist in their own world where every character wore suits all the time and talked in an affected Midwestern accent and the movies were often just made on studio backlots and seemed to have a, a kind of a house style. Which, which are not criticizing, like, it's a great vibe. But, yeah. you know, we're seeing the change from that to this kind of new modern, new Hollywood style where the, the movies shoot on location and go to the areas the movie is meant to be taking place in and it tries to more accurately convey real life and the dialogue's a lot less stagey. And, you know, on top of that, since I kid as well as being the story about, like, a young man trying to make a name for himself, it's equally compelling as just this look into the world of poker players in New Orleans in the 30s where, you know, games didn't take place in casinos but in, like, people's apartments and they went on for days and everyone's constantly just issuing out markers, like, IOUs for credit. And, um, like, this is one of those movies, which I love, which which has a lot of kind of authentic jargon about the world it's depicting and trust viewers will just be able to keep up and know what's happening because of how the stuff is presented on screen and how characters react and because of that it starts off a little slow but just grows and grows momentum into this thrilling final third which is just a poker match and all the plot points are converging and you really don't know how it's going to turn out 
And uh, yeah, Robinson's really excellent in this, and he, he's showing a bit of a different side to himself because you know while in Double Indemnity and Little Caesar, he's he's so electrifying, tearing into these like very theatrically written scripts where characters say more things than I've said in my entire life. Um, in the Cincinnati Kid, he's he's just as compelling with limited dialogue because Lancey Howard is a man whose reputation precedes him, like he's a legend. Like the minute the poker community hears he's coming to town, he's just inundated with requests from people to play him, and. The fact that Edward G. Robinson was such a legendary figure in Hollywood, like he's bringing that history to the role. Then, you know, on top of that, you have like the coolly, the way, cool way he delivers like the sparse dialogue. Like someone at one point who he beats asks like, how did you know I didn't have the king? And he's like, son, all you paid was the looking price. Lessons are extra. And <laughs> the way they style him in the movie, they give him this like awesome suit, a top hat, a cane, lots of jewelry on his hands. Like all that combined just pr- projects confidence. But in that last third, as he like faces off against the kid and sees how good he is and begins to feel threatened by him and like feel his own age, like you suddenly see him begin to lose that like confidence. There's a great scene where he tries to get into the kid's head during one of the breaks in the matches and he says he starts talking about like how you can make mistakes during big games and your nerves act up and then he says, How's your nerves, kid? And then there's another bit where, you know, the kid is having problems with his girlfriend, Peppa Tuesday Wild, and Robinson says to him, like, in their business, it's best not to look for a fixed thing, and that it's better to tie into a nice thing when you're away from the poker table and let it wear itself out. And what he's doing is trying to subtly throw the kid off his game by making him kind of, like, get in his own head about his relationship. But then, like, later on, like, he goes to get up from the poker table and almost stumbles. It's, like, too much for him. In their last round, like, Jewison keeps cutting to Robinson in close up. He just looks anxious, sweaty, like he's, mm-hmm. he's coming undone. And Robinson's not overplaying it. Like, you still feel Lancey trying to stay composed. Like, it's really great. Actually, this is one of Robinson's most major roles after he was not quite blacklisted, but graylisted from Hollywood mm-hmm. following him naming people like Dalton Trumbo when called to testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee during the Red Scare. And it yeah. seems like the part of Lancey really resonated with Robinson, who saw a lot of similarities between himself and the character. Like, he wrote in his autobiography, I could hardly say I identified with Lancey. I was Lancey. That man on the screen, more than in any other picture I ever made, was Edward G. Robinson with great patches of Emmanuel Goldenberg, which was his real name, showing through. He was all cold and discerning and unflappable on the exterior. He was aging and full of self-doubt on the inside. Even that final session of the poker game was real. I played that game as if it were for blood. It was one of the best performances I ever gave on stage, on screen, or radio, or TV. And the reason for it was that it wasn't a performance at all. It was symbolically the playing out of my whole gamble with life. So wow. that's like not enough to make you want to watch it. I, I don't know what more I can yeah, do for you, but uh, it's a really cool yeah. movie. Try and track it down. Do you want to hit Saw nice. and Green? I will. Saw an oceanographic survey report 2015 to 2019. Two volumes. When how'd you get all these? Off his shelves. They were the only reference books he had. You like them? You love them. Do you know how many books were published in this country once upon a time when there was paper and power and presses that worked and... What the hell? Oh, my God. <laughs> Simonson was a great man. Lechaim. So in Soil Green... Edward G. Robinson plays Saul Roth, a skilled analyst and good friend of Detective Thorne, who's played by uh, G. Robinson's good real-life friend, Charlton Heston. 
Detective Thorne is investigating the death of a board member of the Soylent Company in a dystopic 2022. So the oceans are dying, greenhouse gases are clogging up the atmosphere, and uh, temperatures are rising. Uh, so um, overpopulation and lack of food is driving everyone to desperation. And together they, they discover a vast conspiracy of how the new and nutritious um, food product Soylent Green is actually made. So it was Robinson's 101st and ultimately final film role. He died 12 days after filming it. And much of his performance is that of a cantankerous old Jewish man who misses real food, clean air and you know, green trees. And in this situation, who wouldn't when the very air around you is green with literal greenhouse gases? And I think Robinson injects like real sorrow and sadness into this, into this last kind of screen performance. And I think once you know it's a final performance, there's a weight to it you can't remove. And it, I've been thinking about this all day. And it, like doing your final performance when you know you're dying, he was dying of um, bladder cancer at the time. It's probably an easy and a hard job at the same time because it's easy because it wouldn't be hard to conjure up the emotion required to say you miss food and fresh air. And it's, it's obviously hard because he knew you know his life was coming to an end. And... A lot of these scenes are just him kind of exposition dumping and you know giving um, Charlton Heston the, the the information he needs to continue his investigation. And while you know obviously being very sad about all these things that he misses and used to exist, um, but it's his last scene that's the most effective. It's Saul choosing to be euthanized rather than you know to continue living in such a cruel, uncaring world. It's his sacrifice that allows his, which is watched by his best friend Thorn. It allows um, Thorn to figure out the truth. And I think I have a pretty powerful quote here from Charlton Heston, who wrote in his 1978 autobiography, He knew while we were shooting, though we did not, that he was terminally ill. He never missed an hour of work, nor was late to a call. He never was less than the consummate professional he had been all his life. I'm still haunted, though, by the knowledge that the very last scene he played in the picture, which he knew was the last day's acting he would ever do, was his death scene. I know why I was so overwhelmingly moved playing it with him. And you can really see it in that scene, because, you know, Obviously, um, Edward G. Robinson is, you know, he's not crying because he's dying in the scene. Uh, he's, you know, f- slowly fading away. And Charlton Heston is watching him through a screen in bits. And it's really, really powerful to seeing. And I think it's without that kind of through line, Soylent Green would be pretty, pretty good, gnarly sci-fi movie. And wouldn't be proud of going out with, if it was your last movie, um, with a... A pretty iconic quote at the end of it but with that it becomes something so much more and uh, I think it's it's really something special I think once you have that knowledge it's just it's kind of hard to believe that you know it's like life imitating art that his final scene was one of him dying I suppose that happens maybe semi-regularly considering how many old actors play old people who are dying but I think this one was uh, this one has some kind of special resonance to it that I don't think I'll shake for quite a while. No, it sounds incredibly powerful. Rate and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Email us at iknowthatfacepod at gmail.com. Follow us at Twitter at iknowthatfacep1. Follow us at Instagram at iknowthatface. Follow us at Facebook at iknowthatfacepod. As always, thanks Shelley Fernandez for editing and for running our socials. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. You can check me out at the Headstuff Film section and joe.ie. And, you know, please, if you listen to our show and you like it, consider signing up to Headstuff Plus and donating five euro a month. We unlock special bonus episodes of the show. A couple are available now with more to come. See you later, Cinephiles. Bye-bye.
This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Thank <laughs> you.